Good morning. You know, we want to think about this passage today, and especially in light of our own sense of passion in life. I mean, I want you to think about it for a minute, really to think about it. You know, what is your greatest passion? What is it that really becomes your first and highest priority compared to other things in your life? What is it, in a word, that's messianic, if you know what I mean, in your life? You know, that which inspires your hopes and your aspirations, that which makes you become most fervent and passionate about it when it comes up in a topic of conversation. Well, hopefully today you are thinking about the Atlanta Falcons. But if not, seriously, what are you thinking about? Is it family? The family dream? Is it politics? The national, American, let's say, dream? Is it vacation? Is it music? Is it travel? You know, we can't help but, but think about this question in light of what's happening uh, all around us today in our culture. Those of us living in America today have just endured the messianic fervor of the typical American campaign season in American politics. It's seemingly everywhere and along partisan line. It's all we hear about on 24-7 news cycles. And is it any wonder that we are now greeted in 2017 with with equal post-election elation and despair at messianic levels even, mostly among partisan lines, respectively? I mean, let's think about it. What are the dreams and the hopes that inspire such passion? But more importantly, what assumptions about how these dreams are to be accomplished that inform our responses. Yes, I do confess, I have a kind of envy of such political messianism in my heart. Even if I increasingly see that the greater church seems to envy it as well. But this, of course, can lead in one of two directions. Some will envy it in such a way as to co-opt, to allow our Christianity to be co-opted by it, and to such as to validate, in a way, to the world our relevancy in, of our religion. Especially as our world becomes either, and they're both different, but I think they have the same result, either secular or religiously privatized, which means religious becomes less and less a, pers- a, a, a corporate and communal thing, and more and more a private spiritual thing. But in both of those cases, you see how, how making our Christianity relevant to the 24-7 news cycle would be a temptation in response to our envy. But I think we're going to see today that others, like Paul in his tradition, yes, there is a kind of envy in terms of the messianic fervor, of his day, related to Israel as a nation, related to even Rome as a citizen. But this messianic fervor 
was turned in a different direction for Paul. That is, he turned it to a true messianism. In other words, it's like saying there's nothing wrong with the passion and the fervor. The American dream. The family dream. But it's where and how these dreams are to be accomplished. It's what is the place of these dreams that I think Paul here, in a very specific way, wants to specifically address. You see, we have seen already in our passage how Paul will say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of everything. Things that we know he once considered with great passion, as he tells us in verse 2 and following earlier. Everything and count them as rubbish in comparison to what I gain in Christ. In order that by any means possible, does that sound messianic to you? By any means possible, he says. He said, it will do anything that I may attain. And here is his messianic prize. The resurrection of the dead. We're going to talk about that. Everything else is rubbish in comparison. Really, Paul? By means, any means possible, Paul? This sounds a bit messianic to me, doesn't it to you? And indeed it was. But was it justified? What is the true prize of messianism? What are our assumptions about how this prize can be won? And what then should our messianism look like today as Christians? It's a tall order. But something I think that's particularly relevant to those of us sitting here today, living in an age of what I'll call neo-messianic fervor, or a neo-messianism, as it were. And I think it's particularly important for two reasons. First of all, notice the I statements in Paul that we just heard read. He's speaking of himself, not just personally as a Christian, but specifically as an apostle in his calling. He speaks in office, in other words, as an apostle, as in relevant to all those who are called into the gospel ministry. Now, that's particularly relevant today because you might have noticed that on the surface of our, of our bulletin, it's described as a special service of the worship of God, a joint service of Christ Presbyterian Church and Southern New England Presbytery. And if you were to turn to page 12, don't do it now, we'll turn later, you'll see that there are special orders by our presbytery to install the Reverend Jeffrey Hutchinson to the office of assistant pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, New Haven. And so this is an installation sermon, if you will, right out of a text where Paul describes the very heart and soul of what it means to be called to the ministry of the gospel. But you'll also notice that little bit laying in our text, you heard him say, now imitate me, all of you imitate me and imitate those who follow after me in this endeavor. Notice then that includes the rest of us. That while not in the same level, perhaps, or degree or whatever, but the spirit, the passion, if you will, he right there qualifies to be the passion, not only of the pastors, but of everybody. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on the ball. Focused, as it were, 
on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what is it that they're walking in? It's this passion. It's the things he's going to talk about here. And then he offers a scathing assessment of his day. A scathing assessment of the messianic fervor misapplied. For he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross. Now remember, these are people who are preaching Christ. If you remember earlier in the Philippians. Their end, their goal, their prize will end in their destruction. Because their God is their belly, their appetite, their desire. For what? For fame, maybe, power, prestige, privilege, relevancy, acceptance. Their end, their God is their belly. Their glory, the glory they receive from the world, is their shame. Because, in quote, their minds are set on earthly things. And so let's turn to this passage today with with, I hope, a particular interest in how it will frame not only our own lives as Christians living in a messianic age, if you will, but also how it specifically applies to those of us who are pastors and who are called to the gospel ministry. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, please be with us. Help us, Lord, to be open and to hear your word fresh, really fresh. Lord, help us to know that it is safe to believe in your word to entrust what other fears we may have associated with many of our messianic dreams, that these are fears that can only be met in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would you bring it to us then in Jesus Christ's name? Amen. Well, again, you know, if you think about this book of Philippians, I just wonder how much of this letter isn't the product of Paul's own struggle to press on, as he says here. As is so often the case, in my life I know as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times it's as if God prepares me for the sermon by making me live it the week before. Maybe he does that to you too. Some of you come to me and say, man, I heard that one. Why? Well, it was like the whole week prepared me for it. I mean, I believe in that. You know, this is a live event. Paul's preaching and teaching and ministry is a live event. And God is not just concerned to have the the words of the word, but in order to make it alive, God is at work in Paul's life as he is in ours to prepare us for that word, that we're, our soul will be alive. And so you can just imagine how Paul, being in prison, dormant, not able to, I mean, this guy was a high energy guy, man, running all over the world, preaching the gospel, and there he sat. I'm sure he had a lot of time to think about his life in a very deep way. This letter, as I've said before, is incredibly existential, deeply personal. And I just wonder what he was thinking about there, how it is that God calls his servants to suffer these messages in in this enactment prophecy kind of, of tradition of the Old New Testament. And so while sitting in prison, what was he thinking about? Maybe he was thinking about the things that he left behind in order to pursue Christ personally, but especially in order to be effective as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, what these things were. These things he summarizes in verses 2 through 6. And what had before been, he says, quote, given him great confidence in the flesh, end quote. What were these things that he tended to be messianic about? 
What were these things that he tended to have great, such great confidence in, in terms of how then to accomplish his dreams and his goals and his passions? Well, there are three things particularly. We saw it then. They were things pertaining to the social prestige of his family origin. He was proud of his family. And before he would have talked about his family often, that was his pride and joy. It was his passion. And somehow having this very relatively elite family of origin from the family of Benjamin, a very elite tribe of Israel, somehow that gave him a sense of confidence. And it would have been tempting for him, as in any gospel minister, to bring that confidence and to co-opt it into the ministry. To talk about it, to push it, to use it as our credential somehow. The second thing was things pertaining to the political power of his Roman citizenship. You got to understand that it was a big deal in that day to be a born into Roman citizen. There was a big distinction between those who were members of Rome versus those who were born into Rome versus those who would, say, join it. He had all kinds of, of privileges, social privileges, about how he would have a trial, how he would be jury. He could never be killed, for instance. He could never be put to death. Things like that. Pretty big deals. He could run for certain offices that others couldn't. These are things he was proud of. He put and enjoyed a confidence of the flesh in these things. And here again, he could have easily co-opted those things into his ministry. Leverage them, if you would. And then there are things pertaining to being religiously esteemed by virtue of his very highly elitist uh, college education, if you will. Having studied under the greatest of all great institutions in a person named Gamil. You see, sitting in prison and by the look of things all around him, I can certainly appreciate what Paul might have been going through. It's just oozing through this letter everywhere. Was it worth it (laughs) to leave all those things behind? I mean, is all this going to be in vain? I mean, I'm not making this up. Look at it. If you remember earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, you can almost hear him restating this. He goes, I am confident, I'm sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And notice when, how, what's his focus now? At the day of Jesus Christ. That is not present, brothers and sisters. At the day, the coming day. What is he talking about? Because it sounds like now it's informing what he means by perfection and completion. He will go on to say it in chapter 2. He's talking about how they must hold fast to the word of God. The word of life, he says, quote, so that in the day of Christ, I may proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I mean, you can just hear between the lines. Did I run in vain? Did I labor in vain? Answer, not if my ministry holds true on the day of Christ, it won't be in vain. Right now, the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Right now, it just, I'm not sure. It doesn't seem real relevant to me. I'm not sure. I mean, did I really give my life to this? I had other opportunities. 
a lot more money, a lot more social prestige. And you know, I could have used all that for God. I could just hear Paul going right now. Why have I can hear it? Because I hear it in so many of the church planners that I coach. I hear it in myself. I hear it in most of the pastors I know. Those moments of, am I an idiot? You know, I could have, I could have been a good Christian in other ways. And it's true, you can. That's not the point. The point is our confidence, our trust. You see, all the things, his previous confidence of the flesh that Paul talks about in verses 2 and following, he has chosen to forget about, to leave behind, as to no longer have a passion for these things in the way that he now has a passion for something else. And it's all pertaining to this, quote, day of Jesus. In climactic fashion, then, did you hear what he said? This really is the climax, I think, of, of this book. He says, so one thing I do. Now, when someone says that, that's messianic, baby. That's, I mean, everything, this is it. Here it is. You're about to hear Paul right down to the heart of heart of heart of hearts. Holy, 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 holies. Here's Paul. One thing I do. I forget about what lies behind. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, the topic of our sermon. I press on towards the goal the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is this upward call of God in Christ Jesus, really? Well, he defines it with great embellishment, and and it boils down to verse 11. And then he further clarifies it in verse 20. And here it is, 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that by any means possible... Messianic, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that means a lot more than you may think. He's going to explain it in verse 20. What I'm talking about, he's saying to us, is for our true citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day. And on that day, he will transform our lowly body and circumstances, everything, to be like his glorious body. And he will do this, I'm in between the lines here, not by my credentials, not by my past, not by my family, not by my politics, not by my education. He will do this, quote, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. There's some unpacking to do here. Really good unpacking, and it could change your life. I feel like I need to pray again, but let's just keep going. Three things, pressing on. What kind of life is Paul talking about? The prize, what is the ultimate goal reward that Paul is messianic about? And what then will it require of us to press on after it? Pressing on, verse 12, what kind of life? Notice two times this word shows up. Press on, press on. It's clearly the, the emphasis of this, of this passage. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect or complete 
or it's not happened yet. Salvation ain't done. But I press on to make it my own. Verse 14, I've already read. This word, press on, it's, it's, the word press on could mean, I mean, it's a good word, but I want you to hear what they're trying to do. In the Greek, it's not a word that kind of means I endure. That's not the word, though that's everywhere Paul's point. It will involve endurance. It's not just, okay, I'm just going to kind of, you know, roll up as a roly-poly and protect myself. This word means to follow something with haste, intentionally, with an intensity of effort, in order to catch up with something that seems to be elusive and moving quickly, literally. That's the way it's used. It's an energetic word. Running after, sometimes it's translated in the Bible, or to chase after, or to pursue Do not go and chase after them, Luke 17. He who pursued that woman who had given birth to the baby boy, dot, 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 etc. You will pursue them from the town to town, Matthew 23. This is language of pursuit. And so think about what he just said. Not that I have already obtained this prize. Or am already perfect and experiencing it. But I hasten. I energetically pursue it to make it my own. 3.14, you could interpret it this way, using that word. I intensely run. I mean, I like that because I know what that means. Some of you who've done the athletic thing and maybe did some, some track or whatever, um, I just know the difference. I know the difference of practice when I'm running three-fourths and when I'm running on meet day, when I'm running 110%. There's just a difference. And he's saying, I'm running intensely. It is a running metaphor. Literally, like there is a race, and there's this incredible prize And so that's the word, press on. But it begs, what is he pressing on for? So this is second, the prize. What is this ultimate goal, reward of life that decides everything that's so big and passionate that it it makes every other thing that he would put his confidence in as rubbish in comparison? Again, you just can't help but hear this incredible messianic fervor here. We called it earlier in a sermon, an obsession. Well, look at verse 14 again. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Again, we've seen how that's earlier associated with the day of Jesus. You see this metaphor again, pointing to it. But what is it? Well, listen to the way he describes it later on. There's two, two things I want to point yourself out to, and this is where we're going to have to get a little into the weeds. He talks about later how whatever it is, it's those who are mature that will think this way. Now, this is an interesting word that's translated mature, because it's the same word that's a very, and I'm going to use a big theological word here, but it's an eschatological word. What that means is it's a word that, that 
has to be defined in terms of like the purpose of history. It's not just I'm healthy, mature, or that I've sort of, you know, it's, it's more in the sense that you've arrived mature. And he says, for those who have arrived and will arrive, there's a kind of double meaning there. Then you must think this way. So again, the emphasis of this upward call of God, it, it, there's a connotation, the upward, that it's, it's somehow not of this world, and that's very important. He uses this language when he says, set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated, and in, in another passage of Scripture, in Galatians. And so the idea of that is that, not that we're supposed to kind of be living in the you know, ozones and, and kind of flighty and, you know, something like that in the clouds. What he means is that, that when I define life, it starts from the vantage point of this other reality, this, the end reality of life itself. It's where all of life is going. I mean, I was going to get to this later, but maybe this is a good time to try to make it a little more practical. So, so let's say you have and you've affirmed the, quote, American dream. Or let's say that you have this sort of family dream. Or, and you could just name it, vocation dream. What Paul is saying here is that, that this dream, it's not, it's, it's your, 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 your country, your family, your vocation, your whatever else it is. Um, these things have co-opted something that's rightfully yearned after, but whose real and ultimate reality is not of this world. It's something that can't be had by the powers and the wisdom of this world. He makes that point almost everywhere. And it's something that requires a kind of power that is cataclysmic and supernatural and breaking in, into this world, from another world. The upward call of God, this idea of the mature, the telos, if you will, and how it is, therefore, that this world is... Something we have, but we don't have, and therefore we have to press on. Now I'm going to get a little more weedy, okay? Here we go. There's this interesting pattern in this argument. Just think of it as the A and the B pattern. The A pattern is going to state something in a, in a kind of uh, negative way. And the B pattern is going to say something in a positive way. And it's a very powerful rhetorical tool to say one thing powerfully. You got me? And so here it is. If is. I'm going I'm to read it literally to you. Verse 12. I have not lambano it, okay, Greek word, to take, to hold, to possess. I, positive, press on, pursue, go after it that I may reach or, and then take hold, catalambano. That is, I, I have it, I don't have it yet, but in a kind of super having it way, I press on. And that's what maturity is. That's the telos, that's the end. That's the prize. 
He says it exactly again in the same, it's amazing how he repeats this, this pattern and the other use of the word press on. Verse 14, I do not reckon to have catalambo it yet. Now that's interesting because that's how he ended in the first one. But I therefore press on, pursue, intensely run after the goal, the prize. You see? And that's where you get to it. Now, of course, it begs a direct object, if you know in the English structure here. And oftentimes in Greek, in fact, more often than not, you don't have a direct option if it's already been stated prior in a previous context or in a previous verse in that passage. And in in this case, it's exactly what's happened. For the direct object here is in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead, which then is clarified, as I said earlier, in, in, in this idea of our citizenship in heaven. But listen to how he describes it in verse 10, right before verse 11. That I may know him in the power of the resurrection. Notice again the power. He's, he is acknowledging that there was a power that he had, that he was confident in in the flesh, that, that is no longer suitable as his confidence in order to gain what he wants. The only thing that's suitable, the kind of power that, that he relies on now, is the power of Christ's resurrection and may share, in, he's even willing to share in his worldly and earthly sufferings in order to become like him in his death, as in to die to this world and the flesh and the devil, etc. By any means possible, he says, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It just must be emphasized here that when Paul speaks of the resurrection, this is not an isolated event for Paul. This is a power, a resurrection power. The same power, he says in Romans, that raised Christ from the dead is the power which works in you. It's a power that is ongoing and ongoing, transforming, and yet a power that ultimately will come in a cataclysmic, once and for all way. In the return of Christ, the day of Christ. He's talking here about the dream that's behind every dream. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the dream of Hosea. I will press on. I will press on to know the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about how there is a day that will come. It'll be like water on a dry land. We see that dream in Revelations at the end of it where where the tree of life is flourishing beside the running stream. It's the dream, honestly, that I have about, I don't know, having a place in the Adirondacks but that can never fulfill my real dream. It's the dream that I have for my country. This is my homeland. I like it. But it won't ever happen. Not the way I thought. It's the dream I had for my family. When I got married, had kids. Don't you want it so bad? But it's never going to happen that way. Not yet, not now. It's all going to get frustrated somehow or another. I mean, one, they just move off. How dare them. You see what I mean? I don't know, half of you, who can I say? My my family's in Atlanta, I moved off. But you see my point. There's just something we want so bad. I want to get married. What's your dream? 
I want this degree. What's your dream? But see, he's saying here that this is a dream that, that only can happen by this power. You see, it's, it's an amazing how, how, when we stop and think about it, how consistent this is with Paul's teachings in the whole Scripture. In Corinthians, he talks about it, for we know that if your earthly house is just like a tent. I mean, I don't know about you, but tents are not very sturdy. And it's destroyed. But we have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Just pack into that the three things that Paul had to get rid of as his confidence. Eternal in the heavens. For we who are in this land tent groan now. That is, dream big and feel frustrated every election. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This new society that we crave, this kingdom of peace and prosperity and love and acceptance and justice and mercy and grace, of life and empowerment, vitality and flourishing. It's just startling. It's startling how little, if ever, this messianic fervor is directed towards reforming or transforming Rome or towards even families or towards anything else. The resurrection, a new reality. The Bible tells us that Jesus, do you believe this now? I'm going to just go through a litany of beliefs here. Do you believe in the prize? I wonder if we do. I wonder if we drink the Kool-Aid of secularism all around us. I don't care how spiritual you are, you can be a secularist. In the sense that you don't have a cosmology that is a belief about the things that are real about the cosmos. That we don't have a cosmology that's biblical. Do you believe that the prize can only happen at the return of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you believe that? That the ascended Lord will descend? It'll be a mystery. It'll be a miracle, and it will be cataclysmic. 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away in the loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. This is a real thing. This is going to happen. This isn't metaphor. It's glorious. Matthew 24, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I could just go on and on and on, such that in Matthew 24 and 25, the thing that most characterizes Christians is that while they are going about their daily lives, they do it with a messianic fervor, hope, looking, watching, expecting, preparing for that great coming of the Lord. You can go back and read it yourself. Watch, therefore, he says. 
Watch. Pursue. Chase. Make it your passion. That's the point. Mm. Let's just sleep on that for a minute. Do you believe all that? So what would be required? What does pressing on look like? Well, we've already heard it read. Three things. One, it's going to require that we let some things go. Letting some things go. There is this, whatever gain I had, kind of reality where we need to let go of some credentials and some confidences and some ways that we direct our dreams. We need to let some things go. I'm going to just assume you know what I'm talking about. There's a kind of wisdom that we're going to have to let go of and not depend on anymore. Not for this kind of kingdom. It's not going to maybe get written and recorded in a textbook. It's not going to come by common revelation or general revelation even. It's going to come from some other source. There's a power that no matter how hard we work, transcends us in our power. Even if the power is working through us in some limited way. But it's a personal power with a personal coming that then changes everything about what our goal is like when we press on. Because you see, if it's all directed towards the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the absolute most important thing that I'm willing not to let go of is my children's relationship with Jesus Christ. Is my fellow neighbor's relationship with Jesus Christ. If talking about this or doing this or taking a stand here or taking a stand there or or I don't care what, Paul would say all kinds of crazy things here. He would let it go. He let go of his Hebrewness and said he'd become a Greek if need be. He would let go of his Roman citizenship and all the zeal and the passions and everything associated with that in order that he might reach non-Romans. In other words, it directed everything he said and did. Yes, he had rights as a Roman citizen. Yes, he had rights as a human being, a family member. Yes, he had rights to respect, etc., from his education. But I will let those things go. Because the most important thing in the world to me is that everyone I can possibly participate with in this life will be right with the one and only Lord who is coming. And there are many people better than I that can build nations. But if I'm a pastor, especially, but even as a Christian, why would I say anything, do anything, that would in any way obscure and, obst- and, dis- and destruct or, or diminish my ability to reach a person in this world? It's a whole new frame of reference if you believe in the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord. He then goes on and says it in this way, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast, he says, to the word of truth, of life, he says, which is paraphrased for the gospel. 
What is he talking about there? Clearly, he's talking about a gospel of justification by grace through faith alone. He talks about that in this passage even. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it my own. And earlier he just said, and I found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the gospel. That's how we're justified with God. That's how we're made right with God. Now, look, I'll get a little more practical in a minute. But he's saying, I'm going to forego my right to to be an Anglo. I'm willing to put myself in the shoes of, in the empathy of other people's dreams and other people's struggles and other people's plights. And I'm willing to suffer with them in those plights even. I'm not going to push my Anglo ethnic rights as a majority person in America, maybe. I'm willing to set it all aside to let it go, to be a black man with a black man, to listen to him, to empathize with him, to discern what his dreams are and how I might demonstrate to him those dreams being fully fulfilled in no other way but Jesus Christ. I'm willing to listen and empathize. I'm willing to say, as a white man, black lives matter. And I know I don't mean that white lives don't matter, but I know what it means to him that I matter too. And I'm willing to say that and listen. I'm willing to forego attacking a political figure knowing that someone located their dreams in that political figure, and when you did that, you attacked that person and his or her suffering and pain. I'm willing to forego that. I won't be popular in my bubble. I might not even be popular in my own church. But I'm willing to do that because it's the gospel. If I can get in a place, if I can be in a place where I have not offended you or you, left or right, but I can truly identify with each of you and what your dreams are. Guys, you've heard me say this before. It was eight years ago. You know, my daughter went down south, and the world was, I mean, it was turning upside down eight years ago in some of those neighborhoods. And honestly, Again, a congregation of about a third this way and a third this way and a third agnostic on political matters right here in this room. You do know that when you're attacking someone, you're attacking someone in this room, don't you? If you're not careful how you do it. I'm willing to forego that because I want the gospel to come into that person's life. Yes, there's a place to do it in a civil manner, by the way, respectful of the divine providence of God that appoints a person, even infidels, according to our confession, their person should be honored. That's our confession of faith. But why? Why would I do that? Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I got some grievances. You got some grievances. I'm not talking about me pressing. I'm talking about I, us, plural. Although I, too, I'll just have to admit. But, But where and how do I appropriate that if I believe that the American dream can't be done by American politics. If I believe that the family dream cannot be accomplished by family idolatry. 
that whatever dream of importance and worth that I desire can't be accomplished by all the degrees in the world. Well, I first need to listen and empathize with those who want those dreams and the struggle they participate in to find it. Even affirming that struggle. But at some point, I need to be in a place where I haven't so aligned with one or the other that my only audience in terms of who I can have a general conversation with about the gospel is one or the other at best. And even then, if you're thinking with me here in presuppositional ways, I've just literally gone in and gotten co-opted into the very thing that actually I'm going to have to undo, which is a confidence in that idol in order to get it. I forego my right to be a Christian citizen of America, an ethnic family member, etc. I press on. I press on. That's what that means. To the upward call of God. And finally, there's a long-sightedness to it. There's a long-sightedness orientation. Not that I've already obtained it. Did you hear that? Oh, man, do I hear that. I hear that. Do you hear that? I hear that. Man, it is so tempting to give up. I'm tired of fighting the sin that's in me that keeps coming back. I'm tired of fighting the conflicts. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of, I'm tired of dealing with it. I'm tired of messing with everything. You, know, you just can get so quickly into this. I, this is by far my greatest temptation. As you've heard me say it before, I just want to go up and train dogs in the Adirondacks. They don't talk back. But they sure do resist. I'll, I'll just tell you that right there. But no, it's the long-sightedness. It's, it's, it's the long-suffering that he's talking about. Pressing on. Straining. I love that word. Straining forward. Not, just just pushing yourself forward. That's all right. If that's the way you feel. What's the take-home? You've got to be in it for the long haul. You've got to keep your eye on the ball. And the ball is not, honestly, ultimately, political reform. The ball is Jesus Christ coming again and doing everything I can do to have a person right with him so that that person can, can be a citizen of heaven. Jeff, wherever you are, and all pastors in this room. It's an interesting uh, article that I read this week uh, by DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung. Many of you know him. I think all of you know him. Let me just read a, a little quote from him. He's writing a letter, and he's basically saying how concerned he is with what pastors are doing right now in our political season. Pastors should be careful not to get swept up in the daily whirlwind of American or British or Canadian, etc. politics. He says, I'm concerned when I see that a pastor's online presence is almost entirely political. How does the pastor have time to keep up with all this, he says? The twists and the turns of a Trump administration, let alone provide running commentary. You hear what he's saying? He goes on and says it a little bit different. I'm concerned when I see pastors alienating one member from another, one person from himself from another, alienating members of their congregation over political matters that require prudential consideration. 
He goes on to explain, and this is important, that, that a pastor should. The church's position is not to be apolitical. The church's position is to be biblical. Where Scripture speaks, by good and necessary inference, by God we will speak. We will speak against racism every time. We will speak for the church's obligation and responsibility to love refugees every time. Refugees are always welcome here in this church. We will speak of things that we can speak of. You know, Jesus was a refugee. The church is demanded, they're required to get into it with refugees and to accept them and provide space for them, those who are oppressed, etc. We should be doing that. We are doing that, by the way. We're talking with BOH right now. We've been meeting with Iris about the possibility of hosting refugees through a BOH program. But that's different than the church coming out about an immigration policy for the state and the various, the various arguments, pro and against, this and that. Can I go to the Scripture and go to necessary offerings? And pastor, what would, why would I be aligning myself with one of the others? Because if you'd stop and think about it, there are real people who voted for one or the other policy who have real fears, real passions that we need to minister to. And if we'd listen to them, he's right on here. I'm concerned when I see these pastors making extravagant, unqualified statements on issues that they know nothing about. You know, one of the beautiful things about pastoring this community is you're just aware all the time that, you know, so much of these policies go beyond the clear and, and teaching of Scripture, and it goes into macroeconomics, social theory, etc. And for me to stand up here and pontificate about this policy and that policy and to align it as if necessarily an inference for our biblical position, see, that's where it's happening. It's how many things are, this is about pro-refugee or pro-life or pro-whatever, but hold it, the event might be, and we affirm that event, but if that event then aligns itself with policy A or B that is on either of the partisan divide, will the church now, and pastors, you especially, gullibly dive into it? What do we know? Think tanks spend centuries studying these things. We need to learn from them and listen to them and vote our conscience as citizens. Don't get me wrong. There's a difference between you, pastor, and everyone else here. Every Christian has the right to march, has the right to protest, has the right, and even encouraged to do so according to their citizenry conscience, if you will. But for pastors, I'm willing to let all that go as much as I would kind of get a kick out of doing it, so that I can talk to people on either side of the street. Because I know that whatever it is, it's not the ultimate prize. That's the point that he's making here. I won't go on. He goes on and on about this. It's some great stuff. But let me go to you, everybody, and then I'm going to stop. Everybody. (laughs) I want you to ask yourself, what would your children, if you're a parent, say is your passion? What would your friends say is your passion? What would your colleagues? Are you willing to not prove yourself to be so smart by diving into that conversation or making those statements? Because you know that when I do that, unless it's done in a very carefully 
constrained context that the prize that I pray for every day for my colleague and my children and my everybody's could be harder for me to participate in with them? You know, that's what happens between generations all the time. One generation makes, you know, a good thing. Be respectful of authority, let's say. In my world, that meant you wear short hair. Well, if you knew me, I had hair down to here in protest. And so we so quickly associate practice with faith as if they are connected. And they're not always. So for the sake of of grace and charity, I encourage you to be careful. How do you make those associations? Because we're going to run away our kids. When they grow up and find out that, hey, I can be a Christian, but they made me not be able to be a Christian unless I do this. I had that deal with my, my daughter when she starts puncturing herself. Talking about those, you know, nose jobs. You know, she calls me up and says, Daddy, can I, what do you think about this? And I, I said, I think it's great if you want to do it. And I did. And I've backed her up ever since. Lisa, my wife, she would agree she had a little harder time with it, but she got over it too. But that's my point. And see, this is simple and cute, but this is what's happening out there. I beg you, be careful how you use social media. Think about the people. Is that the context? Is that the context to have that conversation? If I'm going to have a conversation about sexuality, race, man, it's going to be one-on-one. It's going to be carefully thought out in love and and after listening to what a person's caring for and showing that I care for it too because I'm sure I would if we could just listen to each other. You know, I know I said this. I did the very thing eight years ago when Obama was elected and I gave an example. I'm going to give one on the other side now. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot going on right now, okay? I'm not going to get into it. You know it. But a lot of things that maybe we should worry about and be concerned about, etc. I'm not going to lie. But I'll never forget, and I told, we were talking, Lisa and I yesterday at breakfast were talking about this. It, 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 I didn't understand, because I live in a world here that is not the world of a man who lives in a town, say, and this person was in Indiana. And I'll never forget watching a telephone and this guy, a television thing. And this guy was bigger than I was, burly, looked tough, man. You'd look at this guy and think, man, this, 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 you know, I don't know, this guy could beat me up, you know, kind of guy. And they're interviewing him, and they're and he's and they're asking him, say, why did you vote for Donald Trump? And this man started to describe his town, a town that he grew up with. It was such a beautiful town where kids ran freely. There was this big, big plant over here, and it, everybody in town worked there. The, the, the plant loved the people. Baseball leagues named after Joe Bo Plant and events and parties. And there was just this incredible symbiotic synthesis between this, this company and this small town. Kids running around, people going to work, sitting out on their porches. Life was so beautiful for this man, and he meant something. He was important. And then the plan, of course, closed. You've heard the story, and it's in Mexico. And this guy on live television starts crying like a baby about how his dream 
has been destroyed. And I don't care what you think of any political figure. I sympathize with that man, and I know you do too. I cry for that man. His life feels destroyed and hopeless. And he votes his hope, however it is placed. And see, that's the person I want to reach for Jesus Christ and say, man, let me tell you where your hope is. It's the prize. How are you with Christ? It's coming. And I'm going to say the same thing that I did back in eight years ago, and I'm going to talk to X person over here on the other side of the divide, and I want to listen to them too, and I want to hear their cries, and I want to hear their hopes. People down there calling them the Antichrist, for God's sake. This person sees Christ. And I need for both parties to say, there's Christ. So would you pray with me about this? Can we, can we just stop right now and pray? I'm sorry. Can we pray? Let's pray. Father, heal our land, please. We so crave it. Help us, Father, to participate in any way that we can in this life. We pray for our refugees. We, we hurt for them, having been displaced from their homes. We feel the compassion and help us to know how we can serve them as a church. We pray for those who are afraid of losing their jobs in their small towns, who fear hostility in our land. We pray for them, that you would comfort them, that you protect them. Lord, we pray that you'd give us the vision and the maturity to understand what the prize is in this life which is to come. And I pray you would change us in this room where every man, woman, and child would experience a messianic fervor for the day of the Lord that is coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.